Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. Before I get started today, I have a shout out. I was so delighted. So for those of you that don't know or knew, I love cards. I love written notes. I love letters. I love cards. Holiday cards are one of my favorites. It's like getting a present every day the mail comes. And I got a holiday card from a longtime listener of How She Really Does It, Mandy Poche. Hopefully I said her name. She was from Louisiana and she sent me a card and a lovely note and told me her story about how she's been a listener for over nine years and has gotten her daughter to also listen who's in college. And Mandy, I just have to say, you're not the only one. There's been lots of other daughter teams that consider there's their coffee talk time and they've been longtime listeners. So thank you so much for introducing yourself and sending the card. And also she was in New York, you all, and she came across this sticker that is now hanging up on my bulletin board. And it says, ring master of the shit show. <laughs> I opened it. And was rolling. I was like, she knows me. She gets me. So thank you so much, Mandy. All right. It's a new year, 2024. I've come back from break. It was all things. And I worked longer than I had planned because there was some stuff I was tidying up and I still have tremendously high standards, even though I've been overcoming perfection. The holidays were wonderful with my family. It was probably one of our best ever's. There was also some hard stuff that later on happened, which I'm actually going to be talking about in today's show. As we go into today's show, this is the next episode in Grow Your Self-Awareness, and we're going to talk about emotions. Last week's episode was Grow Your Self-Awareness, and it was about mindset. So if you didn't hear that one, please go back to that because it's really important to understand our mindset as well as our emotions. Brene Brown says, self-awareness and self-love matter. Who we are is how we lead. And one of the things that I want you to know is we are all emotional beings. However, many of us don't have a language for emotions and or, or we've been told emotions are weak. I know that was part of my story when I was 11 years old, my mother, and this wasn't, this is not a slam to her. This is her own survival skills, especially being a refugee in Korea and South Korea And then being an immigrant and going through everything that she went through in our country, which when I was crying one day when I was 11 and she said, do not cry, you can cry at my funeral, right? So there's this really hard, cold cultural programming most of us have that emotions are weak, myself included. And here's the good news is that what we can do to overcome it is by learning the language. Oftentimes it's called emotional intelligence, which then if you have struggles or an identity or mind, you know, limiting beliefs that you're not intelligent, then you're like, I can't do this. It's not about how intelligent we are. It's about learning a skill set, learning a language and being able to identify it. And it's not based on your intelligence. So I talk a lot about 
an emotional language. I still interject intelligence because those are the words that we use and it's so ingrained in me. But going back to this, the self-awareness and self-love. So tuning into like our own consciousness takes practice. And that's one of the things I talked about in the previous show, right? What are the stories we're telling ourselves? What are we even aware of the stories that we're telling ourselves? Are we aware of somebody else's belief systems that are in our stores and we're out there just executing it? Like we're, we're our own lieutenants of somebody else and then the general in our brain and we don't even know about it. So what may be the cultural programming or the family of origin that has influenced our mindset? And that was last week's episode. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about growing your self-awareness with emotions. And as I said a few minutes ago, culturally, we've been programmed to believe emotions are weakness. And I really hope you hear this. Emotions are not weakness. And I know sometimes my clients get a lot of shame because they're really intelligent. They're really successful people. And then I ask them how they're feeling and they're like, ah, you know, why do I have to know this emotions thing? And it can really fluster them. And then later on, as they continue to practice and they get better at it, they start to get proud of themselves because they've been able to increase their vocabulary. Emotions are not weakness. Emotions are here to communicate with us. Something is going on inside of ourselves. And sometimes we may not be aware of it because we're so busy and distracted. So we may not see it with our eyes or hear it with our ears or our brain, but our emotions are giving us a signal. Todd Cashton, who's a professor at George Mason University, is a positive psychologist. He's been on the show and we'll put the interview link in the show notes. He wrote the book called The Upside of the Dark Side. And one of my key learnings from him was that our emotions are here to tell us something. So it's not about having good emotions and bad, and we should never have bad because that's really unrealistic. But that even those bad emotions, right? The upside of the dark side is it's here to give us information. And then we can look at what is the story? Is this really true? Brene Brown's research shows that most people are able to identify only three emotions. Can you guess what they are? I'll give you a second. So the three emotions that her research team has been able to identify what people have said is happy, sad, and angry. And here's the thing. So many of us struggle with happiness. So we don't, we struggle with happiness. So then if our language is really sad and angry, because we're not happy, we're pissed off all the time. That leaves us with a very limited vocabulary and which then leads us to a limited understanding of our own self-awareness. I was doing a training for the Air Force and it was, you know, the last thing they want, (laughs) or at least these commanders or these airmen wanted was to have to deal with emotional intelligence. And I remember one was so brave and he's like, ma'am, the Air Force is soft enough already right? Because that's the perception of, oh, these are soft skills, emotions, they're soft skills. We're going to, emotions are snowflakes. I have a client that loves to use that emotions are snowflakes and he's doing dare to lead work. And it's, he's really grown to for the last year doing the dare to lead curriculum. Here's the thing. And maybe my metaphor is all wrong because I'm not an airman, right? But I did use this example when I was doing a lot of dare to lead trainings with the air force. And it was this metaphor of if emotions are the wheels of a plane, the pilots are like, look, ma'am, we're fine. (laughs) We're fine. Like if our wheels don't work, we don't need to land this plane. There are these other planes in the air that refuel. They can refuel us. They're the refuel jets. So we don't actually need emotions. We just, as long as we were in the air, we're good to go. But here's the thing. At some point, 
you need to land the plane, right? The plane needs maintenance. The pilots, their own self-preservation. If they're going at whatever G's, their bodies need a break from that. Flying planes, there needs to be refueling. Now, maybe the Air Force has some sort of a mechanism where, you know, you don't have to have wheels and land, but we don't want to do that on an everyday basis. And especially if you're in like commercial airplanes, right? I want the plane to have wheels. So if we think of emotions as wheels, it's a necessary component. There's the thinking, which is the mindset. There's the feeling, which is the emotion. And then there's the doing, right? Which is the actions we take. We need all of those to move through this thing called life. So in society, we've been trying to operate that, oh, we don't need emotions. We can outrun them. We can shove them down. We can be strong because emotions are weak or being a snowflake. But if we think of them as a three-legged tool about who we are in this world and to live a wholehearted life, right? We need the emotions leg to do this. Here are my mixing metaphors. Okay, because what happens is at some point, what works for us, that survival skill set doesn't work for us anymore. We get to a crossroads in our life. It could look like divorce, a job loss, just being pissed off and quitting. It could be drinking, drugs, emotional eating, right? At some point, your health takes a turn and, and it's no longer working to shove down the food. I used to be a huge emotional eater. It can be your health, right? I've had guests on my show who've talked about how they shove down their feelings and then one day, woke up to some serious health issues. And these were people that were really successful. They could be famous, right? But shoving down emotions was the contributing factor in that. It can lead to broken relationships. Learning emotional language is challenging. We forget how hard it was, most of us, to learn how to stand. But we did it and we fell down a lot. And here, I'll just give you a little behind the scenes of what it's like when I work with my clients, because we work on this directly and indirectly in every session. And it often goes like this. My clients, they're talking, right? They're telling me about stuff and they go on into this whole diatribe of what's been going on. And then I ask him like, okay, how, how are you feeling? And instead of telling me the feeling and with one word, they go on a tirade about what had happened. And I listen because I know there's also this verbal processing, right? I've called it verbal vomiting on the show. And there's this verbal vomiting that goes on and I'm a safe place, right? I'm their trusted partner. I walk alongside. I don't judge them. Sometimes I'm like either the only person that can hear it, sometimes for confidentiality reasons, or one of a few people that are in their innermost circle. It's a huge privilege that I have, right? So I, and I listen, I let them verbally vomit. And then I circle back and I ask how they felt when that happened. And they may go into another story. (laughs) This happens quite a bit. And I listen and I circle back and ask them to go into their feeling state. And then maybe another story with an emotion thrown in, right? Like, oh, anxiety. And then we'll say, well, where are you feeling it in your body? What's the story you're telling yourself that's dialing up this feeling? And this starts to break them out of the story and to really dial into what's going in internally. It's not about controlling our feelings. Like we think, oh, I need to like not be sad and I'm going to control it. And I'm going to tell myself this other thought. No, it's about moving through it. Because remember, our feelings are here to tell us something. It's our job to listen, to feel, to identify, to get curious about the story behind the feeling. And then to give ourselves the space to feel our emotions so we can move through it, right? Maybe you need to let it out. Maybe you need to cry. Maybe you need to stomp your feet. One of the boundaries around that is checking in with, is this the place to do it? 
Is this the place where I can do it either safe for me or safe for others? Is this the place where it's going to take care of me to do this? And if so, then let it out so you can process the emotion. My invitation for you is to feel it deeply. And I get it. I used to feel, be so afraid to do this because I thought if I let these feelings in and if I let it start, it would never, ever end. And I was so afraid of that, that that was part of the emotional overeating. That was part of the stuffing it down. Plus, I didn't have a language. I didn't know. And I believed that it was weakness. And I had to be strong because I was a survivor. The thing is that I've learned is that feeling an emotion is about 90 seconds. Dr. Joe Bolte-Taylor, who's a neuroscientist, was been on my show. And she discussed this many years ago on the podcast. And again, we'll put that interview in the links in the show notes. So from that, I kept thinking about that when she said 90 seconds. I was like, 90 seconds? I've been miserable for, you know, two hours. And what I realized was there'd be the bouts. I'd be miserable. I'd be angry or sad and crying. And then I'd stop crying for a bit. And then I'd come back and I'd be sad and I'd cry some more. And then I'd stop again. And what I realized was my emotions were like the ocean. They were like waves, right? Sometimes the waves are big and strong and forceful and they come crashing down on the shore. And then the next one comes crashing down on the shore, but there's a little bit of ease in between them. And then at some point it becomes flat, right? And they die down. Now here's the thing. And I'm going to just own my own suckiness in the terminology of this, right? Because I'm a learner, not a knower, is I don't know all the terms about the ocean. And I've surfed and stuff, total beginner, newbie, you know, not like a master surfer, but I don't know all the terms. And today as I was writing this podcast, I'm going to stop and cry for a bit because the person who could have helped me with this metaphor in terms, he passed away suddenly last week as he was walking into the ocean with the sand under his feet and a surfboard in his hands. And his death is an example of my own growth with emotional awareness. When I first heard the news, I was stunned. I was surprised. I was confused. And I was trying to make sense of it. My body went into just overwhelmed. It was too much information. It's not supposed to happen. What are you talking about? I have a text from him right before Christmas that I finally looked at a couple of days after he sent it. And then I thought, oh, this is funny. I need to get back to him. I need to go into my hole of Christmas and then I'll come out and reach out back out. And I didn't get to. I was surprised. I was overwhelmed. I was feeling confused. And my body went into survival. And within five minutes of getting that text about his death, I had a friend at my door. We had planned this. She was coming over. This is real life, right? I live an amazing life and there are shit shows everywhere. And this is so true on this day. She comes in and she looks at me and I'm a bit disheveled. I'm really disheveled. And she looks at me and goes, huh, did you just wake up? Now this is 2.15 in the afternoon. I'm not just waking up. But that's how disheveled I looked because I was confused, overwhelmed, shocked, stunned. And we talked. I shared with her what had happened, who it was. You know, she wasn't prepared for that. She thought she was coming over. We're going to have a nice little girl time chat. (laughs) So did she walk into something? 
she was very empathetic, right? And supportive and gave me the space. And this is probably very detour for what she was thinking that was going to happen. And, you know, I was pretty calm. There was a little bit of tears, but I didn't want to cry in front of her. And, and then 20 minutes later, my husband walked in the door and he saw her and he said hello. And then he looked at me and immediately he knew something devastating had happened. It was such a long, I don't know, 30 seconds. It felt like 10 minutes. He looked at me and he was trying to figure out, he's like, what happened? And the words couldn't come out. I was overwhelmed. It's like my fuses were blown. I couldn't speak. And he came over and he hugged me and I broke down and I cried. And after a bit, and I was able to stand back up on my own, I told him that this person had passed. And here's what I was feeling. I was feeling anguish. The definition of anguish in Atlas of the Heart is anguish is an almost unbearable and traumatic swirl of shock, incredulity, grief, and powerlessness. And after a long hug and collapsing in his arms, it was time to pull myself up because that wave had ended and I was ready to stand back on the beach and be with my friend. And it wasn't a jolly time, but it was really nice to have somebody who cared about me. We could talk a bit about him. We could talk about stuff that was going on in her life. There was a lot of give and take. It's a beautiful friendship. And then she left and went on with her day. And I had plans for my daughter and some of her friends or teammates to come over for dinner. And I was cooking, which if you're a longtime listener, you know, that is not within my skill sets. But I made this Instapot chicken tortilla soup and I've got it down. And while I was in that space of the doing, and because it is a kind of a routine for me, I was able to physically move and I was able to let go with my emotions. And I was able to feel anguish and sadness and despair. And that's very different than in 1999 when my dad died. Back then, I was young, trying to think how old I was, 27. I was newly pregnant and I powered through. I stuffed my emotions down. I moved through it as if it didn't happen, right? Because I didn't have the emotional self-awareness nor mindset or any self-awareness. My mind told me, I have to show my boss how stoic I am. I can lose my dad and I can be at work the next day. I am not soft. I am not a weak woman. And so I showed up. I coached my team. I taught my classes. That was on a Friday. And then that weekend, Saturday and Sunday, I drove down to Concord each day for these long water polo tournaments all weekend. And in process, I shoved it down. And I cried a little bit and I don't remember too much. But I shut it down, locked it up, and moved on because I had work to do, right? I had these people I was supposed to lead. I couldn't be soft and weak. And if I started to cry, I may never be able to get back up. But here's the thing. That was 1999. Over the next, say, 10, 11 years, I kept doing that more and more and more and more. And then there came a point, a different circumstance that happened. And I couldn't do it. It didn't work. And I remember when I first started learning my emotions and feeling them, like my arms tingled and I was like, is this normal? What's happening? Like I'm feeling things in my body that I didn't feel before because I started creating self-awareness. 
So my own crossroads led me to be willing to be vulnerable, to feel those weird feelings, to be uncomfortable, extremely uncomfortable, and learning how to feel my feelings, and then learning the emotional language of them, as well as trusting myself that I could feel and not be stuck in that misery for the rest of my life. After my girlfriend left and I decided, you know, was moving forward to make dinner, I did check in with myself. I said, well, you know, I could just cancel. It's a, you know, justifiable reason. But I thought about it and I thought about canceling and I checked in with myself. What did I need? What did I want? What did I have the ability and desire to do? And really inside, I wanted to host the dinner. And I say this to you because there's not a right or wrong It wasn't about what do I, should I do? Or, you know, what are other people expecting? I could cancel. I could keep doing it. What did I want to do? And it was an easy enough dinner that like even getting takeout wouldn't have been any easier. So there's not a right or wrong. And my self-awareness that I have now was able to help me measure my capacity and the desire of what I wanted, which is very different than in 1999 when I did what I thought I was supposed to do and what other people expected, and the perceptions that I was trying to overcome that were part of cultural programming, like, oh, women are weak, women are emotional. So I went about cooking, and when I was going about cooking, all those feelings came back, and I really cried, and I cried as I cooked. And now, we all know, I'm not skilled in the kitchen, so this is an extremely difficult skill set, but it is Instapot, and I've done this recipe a lot of times. And as I cried, And as I leaned into it, that deep anguish came back and the waves were big inside of me. And at some point, it was time to take a break and go to shore. And how did I know this? It wasn't even a conscious thought. It was really much more unconscious, but it's because of my practice of self-love and compassion and compassion having boundaries. Because what I started to do was I started to beat myself up that I hadn't responded when he had reached out to me before Christmas. So I'm going to go back to another excerpt from Atlas of the Heart with Brene Brown. Brene says, anguish not only takes away from our ability to breathe, feel, and think, it comes for our bones. Anguish often causes us to physically crumble in ourselves, literally bringing us to our knees or forcing us all the way to the ground. At that point, I had bent over. I think I hit the counter. I was crying. She goes on to say, the element of powerlessness is what makes anguish traumatic. We are unable to change, reverse, or negotiate what has happened. And even in those situations where we can temporarily reroute anguish, with to-do lists and tasks, it finds its way back to us. And that's Brene Brown. So remember, 1999, I used to not want to feel my feelings because I thought they would never end and that I would be deep in misery. But what I've learned, experimented with, and practiced is that I can feel deeply and trust myself that I can exit. And in that deep anguish, as I was cooking, my mind at one point did want to reroute anguish with to-dos. And what I did was I realized, oh, because the helper in me is like, oh, who may not know 
And I started to text and call people to let them know over the next hour. And that bit of connection with others was really helpful in my own pain and suffering. And that was an example of me exiting riding the waves and standing on shore with others. In the days since his death, I've grieved. I felt sad, anger, frustration, guilt. Remember the guilt because he had reached out before the holidays. The guilt then resulted in anger with myself, which I've now moved to a key learning. Don't wait to reach out to those that are important. He's been in my life since I was a teenager and through every decade for five, I would, I don't know how to count it, but I'm saying for five decades, right? My teens, my twenties, my thirties, my forties, and my fifties. And our relationship have evolved to different roles. And so I kept thinking there would be more time. And what I had was instead of beating myself up, instead of being angry with myself, I had a key learning. And so last night I called another mentor of mine from college. And I'm also going to have a hard conversation with someone who has been meaningful to me my whole life. And I've been stonewalling him for a couple of years because I was mad and confused. And I think I felt betrayal for who I thought he was and what I was seeing him do. And I realize now life is not black and white. And the ability to have an emotional language, as well as the understanding of vulnerability we all experience with life, is giving me the incentive to reach out to him and go down and and see him and talk through this because he is somebody that's also really important to me. Because what I now know is it's uncertain the time we get with those we love. While I've been in deep grief and sadness and anger, I've also been in gratitude. As I've had conversations and journaled and thought about him, I realized how significant of a person he was in my life and how much connection, and maybe one day I'll share, that he brought into my life and the people. I mean, it's kind of amazing. And until his death, I didn't realize it, which I'm kind of mad about because it'd be so cool to go to him and say, oh my gosh, can you believe this? And in fact, I took some of it for granted about our relationship and figured there would always be another day when I think about this is there's times I drive on the highway down by his house and I think, oh, I should call him and we can go grab Chipotle or something. I'm like, that's all right. I don't want to bother him. I'll do it another day. Oh, how I wish I did that. So I'm going to seize those days and those opportunities in 2024. I'm tremendously grateful for my own growth and self-awareness with my mindset and in my emotions. And while his death is not the first in my life, I definitely have more skill sets than I had earlier in my life. And even in 2017, when I had unexpectedly lost another mentor, who was a former college professor, my money mentor, taught me most everything I know about money. He was my tax guy and really one of the biggest supporters of me. When I found out in 2017, I was devastated. I didn't know what anguish was back then. And I was plain out mad, sad, angry. (laughs) I often joke, not kind of, I joke, but not joke that I tell the story that I'm mad at him for dying. Like he wasn't supposed to leave me, right? But that's really old behavior. 2017 to, to now, right? I feel so much. I've had a huge range of emotions. I've also been able to feel without destructive ways out like I did in 1999 
or throughout that next decade in the 2000s, a younger version of me knew how to stuff down my emotions with food, right? How to not sleep and stay up late and indulge in TV and be like, I deserve this. I've just gone through a huge loss. But this didn't happen this time. I've been taking exquisite care of myself. And that doesn't mean spa days. It's been about sleeping or trying to sleep, right? Been about talking about him, allowing myself to be vulnerable, giving myself permission to exit versus doing the plan. For instance, this podcast was calendared for Friday, which happened to be the day after his death. And I couldn't do it. I waited until I had the capacity, which happened to be today, which is five days later. And instead of doing the podcast, I honored myself and I chose to stay in bed a little longer one morning. I'm not saying I slept half the day away. I think I got out, finally got out of bed at like 8.30 or 9, but that's a later day for me. And that's what I needed to do versus being the taskmaster that I've been for so much of my life. And I'm learning to unlearn that. Throughout the time since his death, I've been crying. I share stories with others. And one of the newer things is I'm letting those in my life know that I'm dealing with hard stuff, whether it's a death and I've let people know, or some people have heard, and then they've reached out to me because they knew how significant he was in my life. And I've shared what I've been going through. And I thank them for reaching out and checking in on me. Those are all new skill sets that I've developed over the last few years. I'm sure I'll be crying for years, as well as have joy and content and tremendous gratitude to have had this gentle giant be a part of my life for five decades. I am so fortunate and content with our relationship. I'm in awe of the significance he had in my life and the belonging he provided for me and the knowing that I mattered. And I'm so deeply sad. As I wrap up today's show, developing self-awareness is a lifelong project. It's not a destination. It doesn't mean that we don't have pain because I have pretty good self-awareness and I have tears right now. And as I've been writing this podcast today, I stopped several times and I cried. The younger me would have been pissed off that I was wasting time and not being productive in a time management sense. The older 51-year-old self of me who's done a lot of work goes, this is real life. It's often messy and there are shit shows and there's beauty. I hadn't planned on talking about this for the show. I had the topic all prepared before I went on holiday break. But what happened today is as I was writing, my soul guides my stories. Going back to growing our self-awareness, it's an ongoing practice. It's about allowing ourselves to feel the feeling inside of us. Being able to have a language to identify what is invisible outside of tears, anger, and happiness. Moving through the emotion without it overtaking our lives. For the most part, I was, I mean, it happened during while I was on break. But there were things I was getting done and there were responsibilities that I had and I did. And then there were things that I punted like this podcast and I had the space to do it. And I really even thought about putting the podcast on pause. I thought maybe that's just what I need to do. But what happened is today became the day 
that I was aligned with me, that I had the capacity to do this. As self-awareness is an ongoing practice, it's about learning to ride the waves of emotions, feel it, and getting off of them and standing on shore. Remember, we aren't born with emotional language. Identifying what we feel, what we feel emotionally, is like learning to identify words in our spoken language. Emotions, we cannot see it. Our culture hasn't valued it. There are many, many, many emotions. And one thing to remember, and this is a great permission for me, is even the emotion researchers don't all agree about the definitions or about certain aspects. So remember, there's not a right or wrong answer because that can oftentimes, if we think, oh, I don't want to get that answer wrong of what am I feeling, then that's an excuse for us to opt out of emotional language or emotional intelligence. And I don't expect myself who's worked in emotional intelligence to know the definition and the verbiage of all the emotions. I practice being a learner versus my old ways, which was very armored of being a knower and didn't allow me to learn. My self-awareness has grown over the last 25 years and it continued to grow even from 2017 to today in 2024. The other thing about creating this awareness in emotions is for those of you who can take on or really sensitive to other people's emotions, becoming self-aware of emotions actually can create a what I call a compassion force field where you can be with people but not take on their emotions. Being an emotional being and understanding it, it doesn't mean now you're open to take on other people's emotions. Those are things that I've learned. It's like being out in a storm in the rain, not a storm, but like rain and having an umbrella. Compassion can be the umbrella so you don't get wet or really wet. So that's another reason why it's so valuable to become self-aware of our emotions. Circling back to the Brene Brown quote that I opened the show today, self-awareness and self-love matter. Who we are is how we lead. For those of you who may be new around here, maybe for those of you who've been here for a long time, you may not identify yet as a leader because maybe you don't have a title from somebody else to distinguish this role, right? Great. Somebody's giving you this title. It's like a crown on our heads. And we think, oh, I'm not a leader. But here's the thing. We can embrace our own agency as we are indeed the leaders of our lives. Instead of relying on someone else to define it for ourselves, there was a time in my life where I wasn't the leader of my life. I did what I was supposed to do. I was the follower. I executed what I was supposed to do or what other people wanted me to do without even them having to verbalize it. And the good news that I have for you is that I've been cultivating being a leader in my life for a number of years. And I've been able to do that as I've been able to be more self-aware. If the word lead creates resistance for you on growing your self-awareness, I invite you to let yourself consider being a leader of your life. It may take time to process and that's okay. Self-awareness helps us see and live with so much more clarity. It's not pain-free and it's freedom even as I sit here today in grief. And for today's show, I dedicate it to Rich. Thank you. Hey there, before we go, I have a question for you. Have you subscribed to the show yet? 
This is an awesome opportunity for you to preserve your brain juice. I love the fact that I can subscribe to podcasts and television shows and they go straight to my iPhone or they go straight to my DVR and then I don't have to worry of, oh no, especially with television shows. Did I hit record? Is it going to be there? Or now do I have to watch it on demand and go through all the commercials? So go and hit the subscribe button. There's a link in the show notes and that will ensure you that you never miss a show and you can also save your brain juice for other things in your life. There's way more important things, but you and I will still be connected because the show will be waiting for you in your phone. Go to the link in the show notes, subscribe to the show so you can automatically get all the shows to your phone. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.